content warning, discussions of violence, death and torture that some listeners may find disturbing. Welcome back to the Newcastle Witches podcast. Thank you for listening. This is episode 8, How to Build a Witch. This episode is dedicated to Margaret Madison. Welcome back to the Newcastle Witches podcast. Today we're joined by Professor Marion Gibson. She is a professor of Renaissance and magical literature at the University of Exeter and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Her research investigates witchcraft and magic in the early modern period, and she's published numerous books on witchcraft and on witch trials. Professor Gibson, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, nice to be with you today. In today's episode, we're looking specifically at the victims of the Newcastle witch trials and trying to understand what they were accused of. Um, in previous episodes, we spoke about stereotypes around maybe how a witch looked. Um, but this is about the crimes and specifically how you build a case against a, a witch. Um, there's There are some facts, there's some information, um, but a lot of it is maybe hearsay and some sort of um, theories around why people were accused. So I guess that's what we're we're interested to, to dive into. So one thing I was interested in knowing, because on one of our previous episodes, we had David Silk, who's a historian, speaking about the history of Newcastle specifically. And he mentioned, um, he brought up the name of one of the accused witches, which was from the Madison family. And records show that this was probably quite an affluent family. And I suppose a lot of us come to um, the idea of witches and the witch trials in England with this assumption that the women accused were old, widowed and poor. Um, now, I know that there is some evidence to suggest that is correct, but I guess I was kind of struck by the idea that somebody who had maybe quite, like I said, like affluent connect connections, like a, maybe a well-to-do family, um, would be accused of, of witchcraft. And is it something we see, you know, often? Is it, was she maybe like on the wrong side politically? I guess like lots of questions came up in our heads and we're just like, how could this be? Yeah, because yes. David suggested that the family were probably loyalist um, during the Civil War. So, you know, we were kind of yeah. wondering about why someone that kind of affluent may have been accused and if it's a common trend with witchcraft across the, across the country. Yeah. Well, the assumption, the basic assumption is, is actually a good one. It, you know, it's one of the better assumptions that people have about witch trials is, is that the people who are accused are likely to be poor people. Um, they are often, although not always, older. They are usually women, so 80 to 90 percent of, of people in any given case will, will usually be female. And it's quite likely that they were in some way of interest to their community because they, they stood out in some way. So those are all good assumptions. But, you know, really interestingly, there are always cases that are unlike those ones. And every now and again, you do get somebody 
being involved who is actually quite wealthy, probably has, you know, what we've now call social capital, quite a lot of connections, quite a lot of ability to defend themselves. Maybe they've got the money to, to you know, get lawyers involved. Maybe their, their husband is, is somebody well-connected in the community. Maybe they have brothers or other men who can come to their defence. And you do find these cases. Sometimes these women are lucky and they're able to escape, but sometimes the dice of any given situation seems to be so loaded against them that they are taken down, that they are they are also um, accused and found guilty, in some cases executed, just like the other poor people who are accused alongside them. So maybe this witch is one of those. As, as you say, it will be really interesting to look into this case and find out what more we can know about this person. There are other examples. So this... Um, in 1612, in the case of the Pendle Witches, which is quite a famous one in Lancashire, there's a woman called Alice Nutter, who's sometimes referred to as the Rich Witch. And I know of another case oh. in Northumberland as well from the 1640s. Um, there's another woman who's accused who seems to be quite a, a ordinary kind of middle class sort of woman. There's a woman in Nottingham in the 1590s who's the sister of an alderman, you know, somebody who's one of the city councillors, basically. Wow. And he gets involved and he saves her from the accusations. So, you know, right away, I can think of a number of others, but you're absolutely right that they are much rarer than the run-of-the-mill accused witch who is usually a poor woman who doesn't have much opportunity to defend herself really. I suppose I'd be interested to know maybe why they were targeted. Um, is there anything to the idea that maybe it was political, politically motivated? Is this something that you've seen in other cases? It is. That'd be one of the first things I would look at, you know, if it was possible to discover this person's political affiliations, especially, of course, because we're dealing with the period of the, the Civil War and the Interregnum. So, you know, this is a time when people have got these really acute quarrels with each other and some of them are quite long-standing by the end of the 1640s you know people have been enemies for quite some time because mm -hmm. they have political differences and as part of that of course you know we're looking at religious differences so in this case the two do tend to go together but yeah. they don't always sometimes you get somebody being accused because they're a member of a particular sect or they're thought to be there are some gentlewomen accused in the Pendle case who seem to be accused because they're thought to be Catholics and there's some quite good evidence that actually they were Catholics but of course that particular sect was not the favoured one that's not the, the state church at the time and they're regarded as being somebody who might potentially be traitorous or who might be working against the government or you know just generally believes the wrong things and is running with the wrong people yeah um and that's just the kind of thing that might bring a relatively wealthy person who was perhaps reasonably educated even and had some social standing. That's exactly the kind of thing that might bring them to the attention of their neighbours who might start thinking, you know, well, Mistress so-and-so was on the wrong side in, mm -hmm. in the recent conflict. And also we don't like her because dot, dot, dot. And we've got this quarrel with her. And we suspect her because we quarreled with her in the street and then something bad happened to our family. You know, it can be as simple as that, really. So, yes, I think that would be a great place to start looking for evidence. Now, I've heard this in a few cases where like property inheritance, where sometimes women got property and then they could later be accused of witchcraft because it was kind of a way for someone else to take the inheritance essentially that they were left with. If that was yeah. quite possible as well. 
that's also possible you know society in this period and even today actually you know, doesn't really like an independent woman and so if somebody has either perhaps been bereaved during the course of the civil war or their husband or male members of their family have just been away for a long period of time and they've in essence been left managing whatever estate the family has whatever businesses the family has that's going to bring them into a position where <clears throat> potentially they're in conflict with other people either in the same line of work or you know whether they're going to have land disputes things like that things that they might or might not be well equipped to deal with you know some women took to this absolutely brilliantly and and managed the estate in exactly the same way as as their you know their, their lost male relative would have done but others would have struggled and you know it wasn't something that women were expected to do so I think from that point of view that yeah you might be looking at a person who's suddenly made vulnerable suddenly exposed in some way that their upbringing hadn't prepared them for and that their neighbours were not prepared to see them do. One person we have quite a bit of information about is Jane Martin. Um, So she was from Northumberland but executed in Newcastle and we know about her because of a pamphlet called Wonderful News of the North and this pamphlet initially well it sets up accusing a woman called Dorothy Swinnow and the author paints a very like extensive list of accusations um, against Dorothy and accuses her of being responsible for the deaths of family members of, um, and illnesses as well. And it's established in this pamphlet that Jane and her sister Margaret were followers of Dorothy. And um, Dorothy doesn't have a confession, I don't think, but Margaret um, confessed an oath that Mistress Swinnow and her sister Jane were in the devil's company in Jane's home, where they did eat and drink together and make merry. What does make merry mean? Does that mean they got drunk? Does that mean that they ate food? Yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty likely, yes. So, so yeah, probably got drunk, ate, you know, maybe played some music, dance, that kind of thing. It's interesting, isn't it? The sort of things that you're pointing to are also the kind of things that were disapproved of by Puritan people. So maybe again, that's an indication of political affiliation. You know, it's very difficult to say from a few words, isn't it? But that would be one of the things that you might think. And of course, you know, again, here we've got somebody called Mistress, haven't we? So we've got somebody who's already quite a high social level. You know, she's being referred to as somebody who's quite important. And even as they're accusing her of these terrible things, they're still giving her the respect of her title so that they're they're looking up to her even as they're trying to drag her down so I think all of those things are important yeah so Dorothy was married to a colonel uh, which suggests um, she was well connected possibly and had a degree of political or social protections as it were and sadly Jane and her, her sister Margaret did not. They were seen as subordinate to to Dorothy, um, potentially of a slightly lower social class and maybe a bit easier to accuse. So the accusations vary um, from something really serious and upsetting, like the death of a child. Uh, Another is that Jane gave someone a poorly leg. Um, All three of them were implicated in the death of a man called Thomas Young, Now, we know from other episodes that we've done, these are all fairly standard accusations when it comes to to witchcraft trials in England. Yeah, absolutely. That's really standard. Yeah. So often 
you know, witches are accused of causing some form of illness, which may or may not lead to the death of their victim. And then, of course, there were duties like babysitting. People fell out over that kind of thing quite a bit. They didn't call it babysitting, but they would call it something like, you know, keeping the child or or looking to the child while the mother was out or doing something else. So you could look at all of those kind of motivations. And then obviously, you know, a child in the family having died and then perhaps other deaths following on from that. Maybe it's a disease. It's you know a number of people tragically happen to die within a few weeks or months of each other the families get into a state where they are just looking for anybody to blame for this horrible series of events that have happened to them so it's really common yeah I think you're looking at something that absolutely falls within the mainstream of the usual kind of accusation but I do remember this pamphlet actually and this is quite a lengthy series of fits and sort of almost possession-like activities isn't it you know the, the, yeah. the children seem to be acting out a whole range of different kinds of behaviors so sometimes it's not just a, a, a fit like a, a person might have say an epileptic fit now but it's actually the fit is the fit the word fit describes this whole series of activities some of which is you know being unable to pray or acting up during church services or screaming or vomiting or um, you know demanding constantly to go out and play demanding to be allowed to do things that you're not normally allowed to do maybe acting out things like sins and sermonizing to the community these kind of possessed or obsessed children can do all sorts of stuff and it all falls under the heading fits which I've always thought was really interesting you know like traditionally people would say like oh maybe it was undiagnosed epilepsy you know or something like this because maybe they didn't have the technology and the sort of medicine at the time to understand that but the whole idea that it could have just been like a child having a really intense tantrum which we've all seen children have that has thrown a whole new perspective for me. It's got a cultural dimension to it. And then sometimes it has within that, it's, it's religious. You know, just imagine these children being brought up in this time period. You know, whichever side they're on in the Civil War, their life has been torn apart by Civil War. There's all sorts of disruptions in their community. Everything is horrible. They've probably known people who've been killed or injured in the, the conflict. Um, it's, absolutely, it's just a desperate time for them. And even in normal times, we, you know, assuming that we can see any time in the early modern period as normal because it was a period period of intense conflict over loads of different things but even within that kind of longer time period you often find children acting out certain kind of religious compulsions or certain kinds of rebellion against religious constraints you know they'll want to talk about the devil they'll want to shout blasphemies they'll they'll want to not go to church and not pray and you can just imagine why they would not want to because you know they live these narrow lives where they're herded off to church and they're told all the time they're sinful and they mustn't do this and they would sit down and keep quiet and not interrupt the elders and listen to what the minister has to say and all of that kind of thing so yeah I think you quite often you're dealing with people who are just exploding with rage at the the constraints their society's placed on them and so yes they're kind of naughty children on the one hand you're absolutely right to point to that so sometimes you'd look at the the pamphlet accounts and you think yes I know what you're doing you just need to calm down here but sometimes you look at it and you think 
I understand how you got to that position because your life is really miserable as a child. You know, mm. it's not fun. You don't get to go out and play. You don't have, uh, uh, you know, lots of toys and lots of reading material and you're basically not allowed to do anything. Yeah. So I think, yeah, think about it in those ways, maybe, if that helps. Should we go to the case of Matthew Bulmer? Uh, yeah, so where shall we start? So um, we think Matthew was between 30 and 40 years old, so not elderly, and he wasn't a child. Um, we do have some information um, taken from Crazes and Quarrels by Peter Rushton, and it says Matthew Bulmer appears to be a Newcastle Smith who was involved in a number of disputes, um, and he appeared as a victim in one case and appeared as the accused in another case, and all this happened prior to him being accused um, of witchcraft, and these disputes were about money. The idea that the, there is a single male witch and that he's somebody who's quarrelled with his neighbours is another classic. Is yeah, it? absolutely. Yes, it is. So that happens quite a bit. And there's some great examples. So there's a, a man in the Essex case that I'm interested in from the 1580s who seems to be accused because he's the husband oh. of somebody else who is accused. But also he's got his own quarrels with people. So he's quarrelled with his employer and his employer has accused him of killing some of his horses and burning some of his, his corn in a barn. So there's a dispute about whether this man is a grateful employee or a you know vicious witch and arsonist. And he's fallen out with various other people about things. And then you've also got some, you've got several actually in the um, the Witchfinder General trials of sort of 1645 to, to 1647. But the one that stands out there as a comparison is John Lowe's, who is actually the minister, the vicar um, of, of one of the parishes that, that Matthew Hopkins and his fellow Witchfinders visit. And he again is described as somebody who's regarded by his parishioners as a bit quarrelsome as a bit odd as, as somebody who doesn't behave in the way that they think you know well-connected well-educated good businessman and friend and, and minister and mentor should do so maybe Mr Bulmer is a similar kind of character and he's got a number of ongoing disputes yes maybe they're about money maybe they're about other things but either way he stands out in some way so people see him as troublesome and that's often a way that, that, you know, quarrels start and then something goes wrong in the family of the person who's quarrelled with the supposed witch. And of course, it develops into a case of finger pointing and maybe a witchcraft accusation. So that, again, sounds like quite a classic manifestation of that. Um, one of the other things that are really interesting about um, Matthew Bulmer is the way he is described. So in the records, he's accused of being a witch. And then yes. as time goes on in certain texts, he gets called a wizard, he gets mm. called a warlock, and he gets called a shapeshifter. And that he can, is this true, like he can become a black cat called vinegar. There's like a local legend. Why would he suddenly be called a wizard? Is it just yeah. a mistake or is it something that people thought men should be categorised as wizards, not witches? That is what they think. Yeah, there's a lot going on there, isn't there, in that yeah. story? 
so yeah to start with yes he would have been a witch that is what he would have been called um but people in the early modern period did use the term wizard as well they didn't use it in that exclusively gendered sense that we tend to now you know it's it's not a sort of harry potter division between witches on the one hand and wizards on the other in that period so the word wizard might have been chucked about a bit but officially what he is in in legal terms is a witch so that sort of disposes of that bit of the question the other things are also quite interesting so you've got some sense of him as perhaps being a businessman haven't you and one of the things that can sometimes occur with a, a male witch is that they get sort of built up into this character of some kind of magician you yeah. know some sort of conjurer or dr faustus figure or somebody who's immensely powerful in some ways and you know if he is a a, a reasonably effective you know well-educated sort of man and maybe he has some books and maybe people start thinking that the you know there might be magic books or something like that that's another motive that people might have over time to start labeling him a wizard because you know when you say wizard you think of i don't know gandalf don't you or dumbledore that's the kind of thing that you think about um, and it's quite unlikely that he was anything like that. He was probably just an ordinary person who was accused of witchcraft. You know, he could perhaps have had some sort of occult learning. You never know. It's quite unlikely to be documented. Yeah. Um, so there's all of that. There's all of those reasons why he might be labelled a wizard later on. And by the time you get on to the Victorian period, people do routinely use words like wizard because, again, that's a very kind of gender divided society and people don't like referring to to men from history as witches so they start thinking about them as wizards instead or warlocks as you say which is the other word that's used yeah vinegar vinegar tom so yeah one of the the familiars that a woman called uh, Bess Clark describes when when she's talking to Matthew Hopkins under under some duress again um she says she's got a familiar called vinegar tom and, and he turns up a couple of times in the accounts of the, the Hopkins trial. On one occasion, he's supposed to be some kind of dog. And then later on, um, he seems to change. There's this, often this idea of shape-shifting that goes along with familiars. And in another account, he's described as having the head of an ox and the body oh. of a dog, which is a very strange thing. So again, you've got that, that, that bringing together of, of the name vinegar with ideas of shape-shifting. So I'm thinking that's a story that's come along and just sort of stuck on to the story of Mr Bulmer but you know again it, it might be there might be a record somewhere that tells you something more about him but that does sound a bit more folkloric it sounds like that's borrowing from somewhere else. So the shape-shifting aspect is that a common accusation in which trials and witchcraft? It is yes it is it's it's a little bit more common later on in the period than it is early on say in the Elizabethan time but yes the idea the, the idea of witches having a familiar seems to migrate into the idea that witches turn into creatures but you do find even early on you know I can think back to a case from 1579 in Windsor where somebody and again this is a male witch is said to be able to shift his shape and become certain kinds of animal he sounds like he was a bit of a character, doesn't he? I mean, what he sounds like is quite a forceful, quite successful individual whom a lot of people don't like and to yeah. whom they might quite easily attribute all sorts of other powers just because he's a forceful person. I find Matthew Bulmer to be just such an intriguing character because he would have been a, a businessman. He would have, you know, the smith. He would have 
been in the centre of the city and involved in everything and I sometimes wonder if he was quite an antagonist or you know like to maybe threaten people I don't know he just a very intriguing character that makes sense you know if he's got a smithing business then he's probably doing quite well and if he is the smith himself he's big you know he's big muscular man um, because you have to be to be a blacksmith mm-hmm. so he could be threatening in different ways possibly to yeah be. like some of the um theories that were initially floated was that maybe there was like the queer aspect or maybe he was like an outsider in that regard but thinking about him if he was a blacksmith like, yeah he would have been quite a physical presence yeah i guess mm-hmm. I think he would. I think, yes, if he was doing the work himself, you would have noticed him walking down the street because he would be a big man um, and he would be well known as well. You know, they, they were smithies were the garages of their time. So it would be yeah. like somebody who works at your local garage. You, you would know them. You would have to keep going there for all your metalsmithing needs. So I expect he would have been quite well known. And, you know, if he had a reputation for quarrelling with people, I would see that as something that might have drawn the accusation of witchcraft to him rather than necessarily something more personal. But again, accepting that we just don't know. This has been a fascinating conversation, um, looking a lot more closely at who these people were and understanding how they might have come to be accused of, of being witches, obviously something that they're not actually guilty of. Mm. No, indeed. I, I think, yeah, what you need to think about them as being is probably just ordinary people of the kind that we are ourselves and that we know to whom something terrible happens. And the more you can try to reconstruct of who they might have been before and as that terrible thing happened, then the better I think that is. I also feel like I'm starting to know them a lot more um, and getting to see their world a bit and who they might have been. Um, it's just there's a there's a lot to unpick. You could just keep going and going, can't you? No, just look at everything you can do. Maps are another good resource as well. You know, if you can reconstruct something about their environments and where they lived, it just it gives back what you can give them, and I think that's really worth doing. Thank, Thank you, you so much, uh, Professor Marion Gibson, for joining us. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by the Tyneside Cinema, The Ghosts of England Season, a special programme exploring the folkloric, magical and ghostly roots of England through cinema. It's on from the 10th of January to the 7th of February 2023 at the Tyneside Cinema, Newcastle. You've been listening to the Newcastle Witches podcast. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as the Newcastle Witches podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode.